Hello everyone, welcome to the third episode of Parliament's Procedure with Chris and Victor. Um, I'm Chris. I'm Victor. And, right, that's the eponymous Victor. And today we'll be exploring first Congress's power to request and publicize any uh, individual's tax returns. Um, in particular, we're talking about this because it relates to one way that Congress could get at President Trump's tax returns, and that it raises questions about separation of powers between Congress and the executive branch, and uh, something called executive privilege. Um, next, we'll talk about, we'll, we'll continue our exploration of privilege, but focus on Congress's own right of privilege to um, decline to respond to a judicial subpoena. Um, in theory, that could also apply to the presidential request for information, but anyway, we'll dive into that after. Uh, then we'll get to discuss the permissibility of the chaplain of the House um, under the Establishment Clause. Uh, basically, the Establishment Clause says, you know, you can't establish a state religion, and a chaplain is somebody who uh, gives a prayer at the beginning of sessions of Congress, so is that in conflict? Then we'll take up the uh, discussion of a, an interesting and kind of curious congressional rule, which is... Um, that at the end of a session, a congressional session, any legislation that's been introduced but hasn't been formally passed um, drops away and has to be reintroduced by the new members of the new Congress if they want to like, continue working on that issue. Um, and then finally, we'll get to um, the powers of the clerk in uh, the House during the brief window of time where the Congress, a new Congress is assembled but hasn't selected its own officers. Generally, it's the first day of the congressional session and the clerk has to run and preside over the chamber. And what implications does that have in terms of like how powerful is the clerk for that one day? So to dive into the first thing that we've discussed, uh, unless, Victor, you have any other thoughts you want to this is great. So the first thing that I want to discuss is how Congress, particularly a House of Congress, could disclose private tax returns publicly without violating any laws, rules, or in any sense not getting in trouble. So essentially each House of Congress, due to a old law passed in the, about 100 years ago, can request tax returns from the Treasury Department, which... Is a, and the Treasury Department includes the IRS. So essentially they can request from the IRS any tax returns they want for right. really any reason whatsoever. And that law, do, do you know the citation for that yes. law? Yes, so for... that, that law is uh, United States Codes 26, Section 6103, and then in particular, Section F. And the important clause of that section is... Upon written request from the chairman of, of the Committee on Ways and Means, so it's a committee of the House of Representatives, the secretary, this is the secretary of the Treasury, shall furnish such committee with any return or return information specified in such request. And if the committee wants anything that's particular about an individual or several individuals, um, those returns can only be given to the committee in closed session of that committee. So in a sense, this law says you can only give this information to the committee if it's not disclosed to the public. So in a sense, this law protects disclosure from the public of this information. 
So it seems then, like at least on the surface, this would prevent uh, a hypothetical, you know, the president's tax returns being brought into, you know, being requested by the, the chairman of this committee and then publicized just by having it on the public record or being read into the public record. So that's what it seems like, I'm guessing. But is it a little deeper than that? Well, yes. So if we just look at this law, all it says is that you have to transfer the tax return from the executive branch to the legislative branch. That's the core functions of this law, and that is the reason why any tax returns can be revealed. So it's a mechanism that forces a disclosure to Congress from the executive branch, because the Secretary of the Treasury is in the executive branch. Yes. So this is a law that says shall provide, so that means they have no... They can't say no, essentially. They have no... Right. It's a mandatory... Yeah. If if Congress meets all of the other provisions of this act, then sort of mechanically, the executive branch is in theory supposed to turn over anything requested. It's not supposed to be up for a political debate between the sections, in theory. And then Congress itself has its own rules, which essentially prohibit either staff members or outside counsel from making public any... Any material that's confidential derived from executive session or classified. basic idea is that, like, if you're a congressional aide that's sitting in the meeting that's closed session, you shouldn't be allowed to go and talk about it publicly without repercussion. Or if you're a congressman, for example, you shouldn't be allowed to backdoor in a leak of confidential information just by having heard it in the closed session and then talking about it later, right? Well, I mean... That's at least the, in theory, that's that's yes, the gloss. At least in theory, but at the same time, the Constitution vests particular powers within senators and representatives in their official duties as senators and representatives in Congress. So the, con- the Constitution has not something known as the speech and debate clause, right. which prohibits senators and representatives from being questioned in any other place about what they said or did during a speech or debate, or essentially performing functions of Congress. So, if a senator previously served in the military, for example, and has knowledge of confidential or classified information, the senator can reveal that information during a debate, and nothing can be done about that because well, it's a, is it nothing can be done about that, or is there nothing that the federal or the executive branch or the judicial branch could do about that? Well, so the only thing that can be done about that is the senator can be expelled from the Senate, but for example. Right. The person will not be in any legal jeopardy. The person will not be in any... Right. So like, it, so in some countries, you can be sued for your activities as a member of government. But here, like, if you revealed state secrets as a congressman, you couldn't be prosecuted for that? Is that what you're saying? Only if you reveal it in... in official proceedings of the Senate or the House. Okay, so if you're like sitting at the rostrum of, of the, the House and, and or giving some speech, or, or a committee, and you're giving a speech and you happen to, in the middle of that speech, say, oh, by the way, in this con- in this committee session that we had that was closed a couple weeks back, um, I was told X, Y, and Z. If that's during an official, you, you are recognized by the Speaker of the House, you're allowed to speak, and then you say those words, Nothing bad is necessarily going to happen to you other than maybe getting sort of like recalled by your electorate 
or maybe censured by an ethics committee? Is that a or, possibility? Or yes, or you could be punished through removal from all your committee assignments and right. potentially so, expelled by Congress from your house. So really what it means then is that, in theory, that law then says, well, congressmen shouldn't be leaking things, but Congress's own rules say that, well, if a congressman heard it in closed session but then announced it publicly in some official function, that's a loophole. Is that kind of the idea? Kind of, but I mean, the House's rules itself prohibit disclosure of executive uh, closed session information or executive session information. So, yes, there will be no legal jeopardy, but technically a member could be censured for doing so. So I think just to prevent accusations of partisan misconduct or accusations of, like, acting above the law, I think most representatives would want to do it in a more formal way so that they're not in, even in violation of the House's rules when they're disclosing this information. Right. So really the way that any individual's tax returns can be obtained is by first the chairman of the Committee on Ways and Means of the House of Representatives requesting tax information for that individual. There's two committees which can also request information. That is the chairman of the Committee of Finance in the Senate. So this power is vested exclusively in the chairman of the Committee of the Ways and Means of the House of Representatives, chairman of the Committee on Finance in the Senate, or chairman of the Joint Committee on Taxation. So any three of these committees can potentially request uh, these tax return documents. However, since the Committee of Finance in the Senate is run by Republicans, and the Joint Committee has an equal number of Republicans and Democrats in the committee, it is not as plausible that those two committees would want to request, for example, the President's tax returns. However, At least the President Presidents. Yes, the, the President President's tax yeah, returns. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> but the House of Representatives Committee on Ways and Means can do it exclusively by itself. So only the Chairman requests those records. Right. The committee doesn't even need to have any approval of this request. So before we go on further about this sort of operation of how that would work, why do you think it is that these are the three committees that are authorized by the law? Like when Congress was drafting this law and writing it up, why do you think they were like, well, these three committees sensibly ought to have this power? There's a good reason for it. Why? Originally, these proceedings in the U.S. Code were designed to allow Congress to investigate executive malfeasance or executive abuse of power in a sense. Essentially, these laws were passed during a scandal in, I believe, 1924, when Congress wanted to investigate the tax returns of members of the executive branch. At that time, it wasn't the president who was mm-hmm. accused by, I believe, members of the president's cabinet. Is this the Teapot Dome scandal, or am I, I way so, off? Yes. No, no, I believe this is the Teapot Dome scandal. For those of you who didn't take or didn't pay attention to your high school uh, high school history courses, uh, it was a bribery scandal where one of the presidents, um, his cabinet was getting a lot of kickbacks from, I think there was like a particular land deal about some oil fields and um, they got like a sweetheart deal because the regulatory agencies, the federal government were supposed to be managing kind of help the corporation out. Basically, just there are a lot of inside dealings between members of the federal government and businessmen. 
So f for an exact reference, yes, this code revision to allow chairmen of the three committees in that previously mentioned the House to receive this was part of the tea, Teapot Dome scandal. Right. It was so added so the, the, from the very beginning, then, this sort of legislation was created to serve, like, to check the executive branch, then? Yes, exactly. So with this ability to check on the executive branch, the committee, after it requests this information from the president. So what I'm going to say is how we would expect it to go if there is no hitches in the plan. Okay. So after the committee chairman requests this information from the Secretary of Treasury and the tre Secretary of Treasury is obligated to respond, the committee then sits in closed session to receive this information from the Secretary of Treasury. Mm -hmm. Then if any representative at this point wants to buck the rules of the House since they're since at most, their enforceability is going to be <laughs> censure, and if particularly if that's not that much of a matter for that particular representative, as in they're in a safe seat and it's not going to look bad on any other representatives who are part of their party, at that point, any representative can just ask to be heard at any point throughout any, any point in Congress and just simply read into the record the details of Trump's tax returns. Right. Well, so to be clear, though, could they do this even during the course of the closed session? Let's say, you well, know. I mean, if it's in during the closed... Well, that's what I'm trying to clarify for, for, for people who might not know. During the closed session, could a senator ask the question? Like, it, if they called in the Secretary of the Treasury, he showed up in person, was handing them the paper and explaining it to them, could the senator then, or a congressman, during that questioning, say, I would like to state for a public record, even though this is a closed session, all the information I just heard, or would they have to wait for the session to be reopened to public? Uh, I think in closed session, they just would be essentially just handed the documents in a sense, but right. that wouldn't be public. Uh, right, but ju just, just to walk through what a closed session entails then, what does it mean so, for the reporting of the... Con like, so what's the closed session means only committee personnel as well as the congressman on the committee can be present or whoever the committee allows to attend the meeting so essentially it's just a way to keep confidential matters confidential and so uh, the committee would be either provided with a copy of of the documents they requested and they could potentially subpoena or ask any official providing those documents any questions about those documents Right, and the record doesn't. Act, the record kept at that closed session, though, is that going to record publicly? Is that going to have the same sort of information that the open session would have had, or so, is there some so the record on for that? the closed session isn't released, but it's still made. Um, the committee can can ask to release it later. I believe the mo the most proper procedure is to vote as a committee to release it as a recommendation to the House as a whole, then have the House vote to release it. But I believe the committee could probably release it themselves or someone once again could read the details of the of the proceedings before a closed session in a public session and nothing can really be done to them right. except for expulsion from the house yeah some of the more mild punishments <laughs> so so we've gotten the, this chairman he makes the request the secretary of the treasury complies with the request ideally and then and so just to reiterate yep. i just want to go in more detail about this so 
The whole idea behind the speech and debate clause was that the executive is an independent branch from the, sorry, the legislative is an independent branch from the executive. And that means that members of the executive branch should be, have freedom of speech, debate, and deliberation without intimidations from the executive branch. And that's a quote from the Supreme Court in Gravel v. United States. In that case, the Supreme Court held that the same privileges that apply to a senator or representative also apply to their aides in right. Congress. So, like, basically the president can't, because he didn't like a speech you gave, wait for you to leave the building, like, leave Congress and then arrest you for that speech. Or he can't rough up one of your congressional aides because he didn't like what you said. Yes, but... That would generally be protected by First Amendment, but this is even more powerful than First right, Amendment protections. Right, right. It's, 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 it's that extra step, because you, you could probably get away with what would otherwise be a clearly libelous statement. You could make... I would be interested to look up that, because I'd be curious. Yeah, you can make libelous statements. There you go. Can. Well... It's, uh, a, it's, a histori- it's, a, it's a historic precedent that... Uh, yeah. Like parliamentarians would make libelous statements all the time in parliament and then they couldn't be sued well i'm curious more because i think i feel like so you know how like in the english parliament um if and to a certain although lesser extent because it's less common i think in the united states congress if you sort of impugn the reputation of a fellow um parliamentarian you can be forced to like leave the house well, or apologize, like said, you have to withdraw your you comment. You can be censured, so, so right. yes, the majority can censure you, but at the same time, there's no re- criminal repercussions of any sort right. for this right. behavior. Yeah, but either way, I think it's important to stress, though, that it is a protection. Like It's it's not just your First Amendment protection that every average citizen has. It's above and beyond that, because your First Amendment protections don't, for example, protect you against certain libelous speech or certain fighting words, like, the First Amendment is not an unlimited right, whereas... Or revealing yes. of confidential or classified information. Right, that's a crime. Yeah. But if you're a congressman, you know, then you get this extra privilege of the congressional protections of the speech and debate clause, amongst other things. Yes. Now, so let's now discuss what happens if either the president or secretary of treasury refuses to comply with this mandate suppose right. the irs refuses to hand over the records to the chairman the chairman right. can then ask a court for injunctive relief typically this would be a court in the district of columbia and then this would be appealed to the united states and it would be in the district of columbia because congress is located in columbia in the district of columbia and that would be the most you know germane court for it as opposed to any of the other you know district or circuits most likely this will be filed in the D.C. court, and they'll ask the IRS to comply by order of the court. And since the IRS is an executive agency, it's actually part of the Department of Treasury, so it's not right. even an independent agency. The president can just claim executive privilege on any materials. And to be clear, then, it would probably wouldn't be like the IRS randomly, upon receiving the request from the Secretary of Treasury, being like, you know... We don't feel like complying with this. It would be, if it wasn't complied with, that would be an ex- an order from the president, probably. It wouldn't be just, or, or or could it be that the secretary of the treasury might exercise a sort of preemptive executive privilege where he wasn't informed if, or to not comply with the request, but he exercised a discretionary judgment that the president might at a future date want to have exercised executive privilege? I think 
that at this point in our country, anything could happen? I think if you look at some of the ways that officials have been arguing for the for executive privilege under at least the Trump administration, we have seen attempts by administration officials to say, well, the president hasn't formally invoked his privileges and he didn't write me a letter and say, this is privileged information, but it seemed likely that if the president knew about this request, he might consider it privileged. Yeah. And thus, I, as the secretary, am going to use my discretion not to comply with this. But once again... Once there's a court order, there really is no excuse for not complying with it. Well, there's no excuse other than the privilege. Like, that would be your... that It wouldn't be an excuse. It would be a justification for why you're not complying. I, like, I mean, in the sense that, like, there are two... I feel like there are two probable vectors for a... For non-compliance with the, the congressional, I guess, subpoena. One would be that the president himself positively says, I'm invoking my executive privilege about this particular request and the as a result the secretary of treasury will not comply with the law even though it says he shall or the secretary of treasury and i think this is a more novel application of privilege the secretary of treasury might say well the president hasn't explicitly told me he's exercising privilege on this information but i'm exercising my discretion as an executive official to look at this request, consider what the impact of complying with it would be, and then say, well, the president would probably want to exercise this privilege on this, and as a result, I'm not going to comply. Those are just like the two analytical ways that I could see non-compliance occur. I'm not saying either of them would be particularly good ideas to do. I just see those as the two avenues. Sure. So those are two avenues that you can argue. I mean, the current avenue by the Trump White House seems to be argument that there's no legitimate legislative interest in this. So one of the restrictions the Supreme Court has held in the past is that there needs to be legitimate legislative reason to request these documents. So in fact, even though I don't believe this is particularly necessary, the committee limited their request to the past six years in order to make an argument that they could be evaluating how well the IRS has been auditing certain individuals and as part of that evaluation they can then either change the laws or just have oversight over how well the irs audits i think it's also important to notice that it's legislative purpose it's not necessarily that it has to relate to a particular legislation that they're currently working on they don't have to be drafting a bill about something to request this information they, if they just have a general part of their oversight is making sure the irs is doing its job then it's a legislative function to request information on that. I think it would be interesting, though, because I feel like if that's the justification that, that Congress is using, that's clearly, to me, pretextual, because they're requesting, they would be requesting Trump's information mainly because they think he's lying about his tax returns and maybe hiding something like an annulment clause violation or um, a... Or evidence of collusion as seen through, like, cash payments or, like, business dealings that are oddly structured that wouldn't otherwise happen. So it seems they could also justify their investigation, or they might more reasonably want to ground their investigation in obstruction or things like that if that's why they're investigating. I just don't see how they would have oversight over that, thus the pretextual excuse. Well, Congress could argue that they need to empower the IRS to conduct better and more thorough audits. And if they discover right. that these audits have been unsuccessful these past few years, 
they could create new laws that no, for better. No, I get the justification. I just work. I'm. Cons- I would be curious to see how they could justify the using that justification for the single request of six years worth of one person's tax information. Like, if it's supposed to be t- going towards, like, technically yes, even one person's information could be looked at to assess how well the IRS is auditing. But I think a, ra- a reasonable person would need to. Would recognize that an actual assessment of the IRS's abilities would require a huge sample size, and thus you wouldn't need to request an individual's tax returns. And then you could have had it all in public session. You could have just requested, say, I want to look at the one percent, the top one percent tax bracket. I want every one of their returns, and we'll analyze each one of them. Well, interestingly enough, the Joint Committee on Taxation, I believe, actually picks some percent of audits each year and verifies the IRS was properly conducting their audit. are they, like, are they... I guess they're probably discretionary, too, then, but you would hope that those would be randomized. In an ideal, like, scientific setting, you would have yeah, some sort of Yeah, those, I believe, are randomized. I don't believe that's a partisan activity by the Joint Committee of Taxation. I believe it's just more of a check on the IRS by the committee. So, I guess to come back, then, to why we started, yeah, I do see how it's technically... A justification to look at his tax returns uh, to assess the effectiveness of IRS auditing, but I think it's it's but at it, the same it time seems pretextual. it's not um it's not the role of the court to ask why Congress is taking certain actions. No, you're right. I think it's the role of Congress to define its own constitutional role, and I think Congress ought to look at the within the scope of the legislation that's passed. I think it should consider well, why did we pass this? To make sure there isn't, you know, I guess in the sense that if Congress is looking at it in, why do we pass this law? Well, there's this Teapot Dome scandal where federal um, officials were using the benefits of their power to enrich themselves. Here, we're afraid Trump might be doing similar things, so we're applying the rule as such. But if that's really what they want, then say that as opposed to this pretextual auditing. That's all I think. But in because I think in it's that a good case, then you could say they don't have a legitimate legislative interest in doing so. Well, because, I disagree, Because though. they're not... But, they haven't yeah. opened up any impeachment or investigatory proceedings against the president. They're just well, the Treasury. Oversight. I guess, yes. Those particular committees haven't, but... I don't know. They could just investigate him independently, given the fact. Like, they could just say, well, look, we have all this information we've had from other congressional investigations, so we want to investigate his audits because we have reason to believe that there might be something eminently fishy, and we do have oversight ability over just... But even even if we don't have that belief, even if Congress mm-hmm. has no belief whatsoever, I think they should still have the right to request these documents. It's Right. So I don't think we even need to breach that threshold of whether or not Congress... But- so do you think it, they should have the right to request these documents because of the role of the president is separate from a pre, uh, the person of the president's financial affairs and you should be allowed to look at the person of the yes. president's financial affairs even if the office isn't? They're investigating the president in his individual capacity, not in his official capacity. But it, you know, isn't that sort of so, part of what executive privileges exist to prevent is to prevent you from attacking a president? So the Democrats don't like the president's public to sit his you know, 
his decisions on immigration, his decisions on Russia. He doesn't, but he, arguably they don't like his political issues, but they're using personal issues, for example, his business interests, to attack his political issues. I, I don't necessarily completely agree with that, but I think that that would be the conservative argument, is to say, well, the president has political issues that the Democrats in the you know House's committee don't agree with, and if they requested his tax returns, it wouldn't be because they're afraid of political issues. It's because they see his public issues as a way to score points, say, in an election campaign or things like that. It's Congress's right mm-hmm. to do this if the people or the president or whatever powers it be do not think that this is the power that Congress should have. <clears throat> then they can change the Constitution. But in our current constitutional framework, Congress has this power to investigate and have oversight over how executive functions work. And because of that, saying that for a particular case, Congress doesn't have this power, I think is a very dangerous precedent that could lead to Congress completely losing its power and status as a branch of government. Especially since a lot of the original powers of Congress, which was creating regulations and creating rules have essentially been removed from Has it Congress been removed or has Congress delegated those powers to federal branches? Yes. It's been removed by prior Congresses. Okay. So usually we have the idea that prior Congresses cannot construe a right. later Congress. But in this sense it's completely been removed so from the ability. What you're saying is basically like when a current Congress creates, say, social um, programs that are massive and that are not easily removed without seriously harming, you know, people, say like Medicare, you couldn't just, you know, easily or politically easily get rid of Medicare because it's been established in this past Congress. It's so politically valued by the people who support it that it's a poison pill to try to remove it. So the Congress might not legally be bound to continue the program, but politically it is. Well, I think they are bound to continue the program because there is no, uh, like, for example, Social Security is a... Well, no, no, I mean in the sense that... So currently the Supreme Court has held... I can't remember the citation, but currently the the prevailing thought on the Supreme Court is that the only guarantees that the Congress is obliged to give, and this is very general, but Congress in the Constitution is only obliged to guarantee negative liberties. We can provide the positive liberties, but they aren't necess- they aren't mandatory. So social welfare programs can be removed if Congress wanted to vote them down. There have been some qualifications to that. For example, welfare recipients of federal welfare are entitled to due process before their welfare can be taken from them. And in that sense, their welfare is like their right, but it's their right under the statute, not their right under the Constitution. So. Yeah, I mean, Congress right, but that's repeal I mean. the statute. But what I'm saying is, is a prior Congress has empowered the executive branch to right. legislate, essentially, or at least legislate mm-hmm. in a certain sphere. And the current Congress can't change that because because the current president could right but if if there was true unanimity in congress it could over yes i agree but what i'm saying is and i don't think Uh it's necessarily a bad thing to give up to allow regulations by the executive branch but what i'm saying is 
if we have this sphere where Congress has essentially given up some authority in order just right, because just it makes to run practical the sense, and, and the president can always veto any further changes to that delegation of authority, and if we say that Congress can no longer empower force the executive branch to uh, respond to requests for information from Congress, then essentially we've come to the conclusion that really the president can just act all by himself well, and have no oversight. Is that really, really that what's happening here, though? Because it's not, the president is not re- denying a request for legitimate information necessarily. What he's asserting is that this isn't even a legitimate request. This is a personal issue. And you can request all you want from me in my political office, but my public private life is public. My public and my private lives are separate, and what you can investigate is limited. Isn't that a fair argument to say? He's not trying to say, no, you can't ever request, say, why we made this regulatory decision, because that's a legitimate government function. But how I conduct my taxes... I don't think it's up to the executive. I don't think it's up to the executive to determine... So you're saying that that's... This is an issue that's okay, left so it to should Congress be within alone. Congress's discretion to decide what the scope of. So, like, so I guess to make an analogy, so like a public for for libel, for example, the more you put your you, the more of a public figure you are, like an actor has a higher bar. It's harder for an actor to win a libel case or a slander case than it is for your random Joe on the street because an actor is a public figure and thus has put himself out there into the marketplace and benefits from being public and thus can't sort of try to be like, well, I don't like the fact that some of publicity hurts. And similarly, the president can't say, well, I ran publicly for office. Everyone knows I'm in office. I'm a role model in a lot of ways, but I want to, you know, preserve certain parts of my private life. What you're saying is, well, to be honest, once you've really put yourself out there to become the president, you've given up your private life, at least to that certain extent of this sort of tax information. And there's a legitimate government purpose to knowing a president's tax information because the president could be bribed, they could be bought off. There's lots of negative implications to allowing a president not to like disclose his tax returns. Is that kind of the argument you're going for then? Well, I think that that's something that can be weighed by Congress. I don't think that's something that should right. be weighed that's, by the executive yeah. branch. I think that's an interesting perspective. I worry though that in the same way that you're worried about these coordinate like you want to make sure that Congress is still co-equal. I worry that some of those measures, you know, to be honest, I think you're right in the sense that for this particular issue, Congress probably has a legitimate purpose in looking at his tax returns. But I think overall, I would be, I don't think that there's such a huge gap in power between Congress and the president. And I don't, th- I think you're making a little bit of a slippery slope argument if you're if you're trying to say that if we don't allow, if, if the president can get away with not turning over requests here, it's the end of, like, Congress's relevancy. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, <laughs> you're right. There is, a, there is a slippery slope argument, but at the same time, it's a very, in my opinion, a very compelling argument that Congress essentially over the years has whittled away either its own authority by it, its own delegation or by courts narrowing down Congress's authority in favor of expanded authority of yeah. the executive branch. You know, yeah, that's a it's a tricky question. I think personally that it's cyclical because we've seen periods where the Congress has been extremely powerful. Um, historically, I think 
and we've seen periods now we're going through a period of stronger executive power and i think there is a good explanation for that i think that in the past we haven't been so invested in foreign policy in the sense that we didn't have military bases across like kind of creating a, a soft empire across most of the world so there wasn't too much for a president to do in exercising his foreign policy powers but now you know domestic issues can be left to congress but are you know intractable and a president can make a name for himself by being you know aggressive foreign policy wise obama trump bush they all made their names to a certain extent like obama does that it does his health care but was disaster trying to work with congress so he's forced to look to like foreign policy you you see trump with his talk on iran and immigrants these are things that the the president has expanded his powers but mainly he's done it in ways that have been constitutional like even the emergency powers act under trump that's technically legal uh, there's an emergencies once again a congressional right. delegation that but those are congressional delegations that the supreme and at, court at the same time as well. this is a whole this is a whole different thing but honestly like i don't understand why congress rem- kept that emergency power in place after the after the removal of the congressional veto like once congressional vetoes were removed i think congress should have rem- repealed those emergency powers because all those emergency power statutes were passed with the assumption that congress could just by simple concurrent resolution get rid of those emergency yeah. power declarations but there is an argument to be made that so, you know emergency powers is a necessary function there are times when a president needs to be able to exercise emergency powers for example national but like, i don't but i think this should be done through explicit probably amendment to the constitution to say that congress has the right to simple legislative veto i think over that, that would be declaration it would under fundamentally undermine our current political structure and undermine kind of the entire like that would be a bigger attack on separation of powers than the subpoena power but that's only but that's only emergency powers that are powers of congress that Congress allows the president to exercise an yeah, emergency but process. then you get into exactly where's the border between a legislative act and an you know enforcement action, like. <laughs> anyway, let's get right. back to the topic at hand. So yes, Congress can go to the courts and demand compliance, but really another hidden power of Congress is to bypass mm-hmm. the courts completely, and to just order their sergeant at arms to enforce the subpoena right. and what's that for called? these documents. It's called inherent contempt of Congress, or just Congress's inherent powers to enforce congressional right. orders. So, in a sense, the sergeant arms can then be empowered to go out and well, arrest. To the go out, or is there a limit? To, is it limited to the sergeant of arms would have to get somebody onto congressionally controlled property, and then once there, no, no I don't believe so. No, the scope of their jurisdiction is national. Then, okay, yeah. Of course. I mean, Surgeon of Arms can go out and arrest Congress. Well, that, that's, a, that's an important thing to, that, you know, that, that means then that Surgeon of Arms, in theory, once he gets the subpoena and isn't complied with, he could go up to, like, the president's, the White House, knock on the door, hype, you know, knock on the door, drag the president out, and have him arrested by Congress. Yeah. 
in the name of commerce. Yeah, yeah we can exactly. have a real constitutional crisis instead of a, instead of one where we're waiting for so, the courts to decide whether or not we have a constitutional crisis. We can have a real one And is this where, like a uh, common option though? We, uh, inherent contempt? No, inherent contempt hasn't worked in a while. I don't think it's I don't think it's ever been directly exercised against executive branch officials, but I think it's been exercised against people who have information <laughs> about the executive branch or just in general other information right. that Congress wants. And it's the, the idea of in the contempt power kind of makes sense if you think about it. It's kind of like the courts what the courts have a contempt power too if you're disrespecting the basic rules of a fair court system. You can be held in contempt and similarly the argument of inherent contempt in Congress is Congress has made a lawful request, the subpoena. You've unlawfully not complied with it and thus Congress is holding you in contempt of a lawful process and arresting you until you comply. So it's a little microcosm of the entire justice yeah. system, but within Congress. Exactly. Any official can uh, immediately let go if they just decide right. to comply. And it, it's, it's deeply rooted in history, too. Like, it's not... There are parallels, of course, in the Roman and you know, Greek systems of, of government up through every other modern you know, democracy. It's, it's very interesting, especially in relation to the idea that the branches are co-equals, because in theory, there's, if they're co-equals, there's nothing stopping Congress from ordering a president arrested, and similarly, there's nothing stopping the president from ordering, say, his secret service men to oppose the sergeant at arms because the secret service men I believe are either in the homeland security now or they're in the department of treasury I think they may have switched at some point but either well, whatever way, the president has direct oversight right. or so he could the in theory service, yeah. have a fighting like could be legitimately in terms of a real constitutional crisis it could look like the sergeant at arms and the, the you know congressional police force fighting out <laughs> against the secret service <laughs> And, like, the National Park Service, because the National Mall is run, I think, probably through a federal department. And the Rangers are technically federal officers who could be deputized, you know. It could get very... <laughs> I mean, Congress could also it's probably true. deputize true. different people as well. We'd uh, just have a full-out... Uh, a full-out brawl in, in D.C. But, yeah, that, that inherent contempt power is possible, but seems unlikely even, like, today. Yeah, so, I mean, the question really is, should Congress do this? I mean, like, Congress is, right. has And to be clear, this is Congress, some sense this would require the House and the Senate both to pass a concurrent resolution, or is it one no. branch or the other? Each house, every house has their own sergeant right. arms. They can so the House of Representatives just needs to pass by, what, a majority vote, or is it two-thirds, or some yeah, majority, majority vote, of the, vote house in the House condemning... Or holding the president or whoever didn't comply with their subpoena request in contempt, and they're golden. Yeah, I mean they're. I mean they can even then try for them for inherent contempt before the right. house. It hasn't been done in modern <laughs> times for just simplicity's purposes because it would require a lot of time to actually go through a legitimate contempt trial so before to, Congress so or before to, a house of. Congress. Is there any other major issue on the? On tax. Well, I I think it's worth to discuss current events. So currently, the Treasury Department just refused to comply with the. (laughs) As we were discussing, they asserted. I believe, 
Actually, I no? don't believe the executive privilege has been asserted because I read, read an article how the IRS claimed that the only legitimate way to not give away these documents was to assert executive privilege. But I believe that the route uh, Secretary of Treasury went with was asserting that Congress has no le- okay. legitimate legislative purpose. So, this. Ro- walking the middle road of kind of claiming... This is outside of the scope but of I'm not sure. Congress's lawful powers, as opposed to this is a lawful power, lawfully exercised, but we're lawfully using our own power or privilege. He's just saying Congress didn't even have a lawful act right here. I believe is that why do you need the why do you need to give over authority to the courts to decide this issue? Why not just have Congress say? This is what well, we believe. I guess we do have that's the whole point. Though. That's that's how you that's how you arbitrate. Congress says no. This is obviously a lawful purpose. The press or the executive officials say we don't think it's an executive. Like it's it's the first step in this like in the chess game. It's it's we don't have to assert privilege yet because we're asserting that this isn't a lawful purpose. If the court says it is a lawful purpose, well, that's tricky because it seems like this is probably a political question, and the court realistically should defer. But if the court does decide one way or the other, if they decide for Congress that this is a lawful purpose, then you can then assert executive privilege and we can relitigate the whole issue on that issue. But it's just a stages. It's like multiple tiers of defense. Well, I think you can just ask for enforcement of the for like enforcement of a subpoena and right. then you can just claim that any issues that weren't litigated I think that would probably waived. be unlikely because it's not stand this isn't a standard like complaint like if if what is if, if what the Congress would do I guess would probably be like write up an injunction saying well we want to enjoin them or that actually or maybe like a clarifatory judgment to say like is this no I guess it probably would be like we want to enjoin the Secretary of Treasury from not handing over these documents, and then we argue on the grounds that the Secretary well, doesn't think, have a legitimate purpose for denying our request because our request is a legitimate government function. That would probably be like the argument. I think their idea is to essentially get the judicial branch to issue an order to right. do so, and then have and then have. Um, the judicial branch hold them in contempt when they don't comply yeah but that's kind of what i feel like the ruling would probably be more like but i already feel like congress has already made the determination the congress has already issued their own kind of order right well that's that's exactly what i'm trying to get so, at that i'm saying like if that's what coordinate branch means it means that if congress is equal to the presidency then when the congress says this is constitutional and the president said no it's not constitutional it doesn't matter if congress says it's constitutional because there's a conflict and when there's a split you have to go to the final arbiter, the court. But the court can only decide questions as they come, like, germane. And the first que- and the only question that would be germane now would be, is this a legitimate purpose? Is this a subpoena a legitimate government purpose under this law? And it, only, it would only trigger executive privilege in the alternative afterwards. So you would need that first determination, which is why I don't think that the precedent would argue this isn't a lawful purpose, and if it was... It's executive privilege. I think he would probably just argue this is not a lawful purpose. And if the court said, well, we think it's a lawful purpose, so you have to comply, then he would say, well, courts, if it's a lawful purpose, I have a totally different argument. 
it's that I'm exact. It's that I have executive privilege, and thus it's a new issue that we have to relitigate, as opposed to I should have raised it in the initial uh, answer. Yeah, because I, I don't think I it's like it's right. not. It wouldn't be a standard lawsuit. Otherwise, I think like it would be. It would be an exceptional case because it would be a legit. Like this is a legitimate issue of the two coordinate branches. Like if they're co-equals then just because Congress has said, well, we think this is a legitimate legislative purpose, Congress, I mean, I think the court should probably defer to the legislature in that sense. If Congress says, hey, we think this is something, then I think you're right. The court should defer to them because it's a political question. And so the court, once it's issued the like, question, should be like, yeah, Congress says this is legitimate purpose. There are representatives. They get to determine what legitimate purposes are, which when they aren't clearly unconstitutional, it isn't clearly unconstitutional here, probably. But that's the question. It would come down to: Is this request for the president's information clearly unconstitutional? And that might relate to an executive privilege, and they might get to the executive privilege argument without it being affirmatively raised. Well, yeah. I guess we'll, we'll see what happens. So I think the next thing we wanted to do was discuss a few rules or precedents of the House that we found particularly interesting. So right. Chris, do you so want to start us off? So the first rule we want, I want to sort of dive into is, um, is the privilege of the House. So we just spent a whole while talking about the privilege, of our executive privilege, which is the president's right to not to comply with judicial or congressional subpoenas if he doesn't want to under certain circumstances it's a qualified right sort of probably similarly though the house has the same privilege it can um, choose to decline to you know carry out a court subpoena and it can probably do similar things if the president asks it for certain information but that hasn't as far as i know come up as often but um Presently, there haven't been too many actual Supreme Court cases on this issue because when there have been issues of privilege, say there's like an allegation of, I don't know, accepting or, or elections tampering and a sitting congressperson is being sued in a civil court and one of their aides is subpoenaed to provide notes about an election. What would happen and what has happened is that that request would be sent to that aide, that aide would tell their congressperson, their congressperson would then tell the leadership of Congress, and then the leadership of Congress would determine whether or not they're going to comply or allow the um, aide to comply with that request. So basically the majority party can hide their skeletons and the minority por well, party is forced to reveal their skeletons. I, I don't think that's entirely accurate. I think in practice it's the... It's the congressional leadership, including the minority leader. And I think that it's horse trading, sort of. Basically, it's the same sort of debate that we had when people were deciding whether or not to employ the nuclear option to kill certain filibusters of judicial appointments. Yes, the majority party could, as you're kind of positing, always let their secrets stay hidden, but require waive the right. But it's, it's uh, Congress can waive its right to privilege, but it doesn't mean that the senator, like the congressmen themselves have to. Okay. So Congress can give them permission, but they don't necessarily have to comply either way. Oh, interesting. Because it's still a right that they have, as far as I understand it, because it also doesn't get challenged a lot. What generally happens is if it's something like 
if the issue being subpoenaed is something related to congressional business, then Congress will probably be like, uh, we're not going to waive our privilege here, so we're just not going to comply with this request, and our agents don't need to reply with this complaint either. Okay. Or what might happen is that Congress says, well, you know, this is about, like, you, like, I don't know, this is like a divorce case, and it doesn't really affect the business of Congress. You just happen to be a congressman. There's no reason you can't reply to this without, you know, there's no prejudicial effect to this in terms of your role as a congressman. So we're going to waive the right to comply with the subpoena, and then you have to comply with the subpoena because, you know, it's a subpoena and you're obliged then to. Then the congressman does have to comply oh, yeah. if, if yes, Congress sorry. waives. Yes, I, again... I would say kind of difficult. I would say for a congressman, maybe, because it might be a question that might be then the congressman would argue that actually privileges the individual right of a congressman and there would be a separate, you know, deliberation to decide that issue. I think that would play out. But I think if you were a congressional aide, then it would be a lot harder for you not to comply because, but it, Again, mainly this doesn't get litigated. It seems more like the courts have been hesitant to actually touch on the issue of, like, to explicitly define the privilege of the House because the court is hesitant to sort of, like, that would be a big um, attack on the rights of Congress to just say, to draw clear, bright line rules about when Congress can exercise its privilege because presently Congress has an unqualified right of privilege that it gets to determine the scope of at its own discretion is kind of how it works now which is similarly actually to how the presidential you know privilege works but we don't have fixed rules for this it's more like nebulous here's what we expect to happen because courts have often even when an issue of privilege is raised have found ways to make to sidestep that ruling and to rule on other procedural grounds to sort of leave open the question. So it's kind of an open question, but it's it's interesting to just note that like we talk about executive privilege a lot because you, it comes up with whenever you know there's a disagreement between the legislature and the president, but we don't really ever think about um, congressional privilege. But it's a little bit more insidious because there are a lot more congressmen, and they can have a pretty big effect on how they vote in committees how they vote broadly, like what they choose to direct the committee's oversight effects towards. So their ability not to have to report on their what they do besides their sort of official reporting duties that they themselves construct is a kind of important thing to keep in mind. Because... Makes sense. Yeah, it's... it's, it's, it's in practice, I think it probably allows a fair amount of corruption to go unchecked, because... But, I mean, historically, maybe, but, I mean, in recent years, I think that privilege hasn't been really, from at least my reading of some of the recent precedents of the House, it seems like mm -hmm. the privilege is usually waived, unless there's extraordinary reason not to waive it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think so, but I th I also would be surprised, like, I wouldn't be surprised if the privilege weren't, were waived, but they were all, like, it just makes me a little bit uncomfortable, the scope of privilege being that it's somewhat open-ended, 
in the same way that you're worried about executive privilege kind of run amok, I'm more concerned because, like, the people in the Senate already have a leg up on the rest of the country in terms of, like, if the, if we're supposed to be a country of laws and not, like, a country of men, or a country run by laws and not a country run by men, then the laws have to fairly apply to even senators, even congressmen, and I think that privilege, even in theory... Well, congressmen and senators can are overprotective. can definitely be arrested for committing crimes. Like, I believe True. they're only... So, like, Constitution has some clause prohibiting their arrest when they're reporting to Congress, but at the same time, that has only been interpreted to apply to civil arrests. So any criminal yeah, action Yeah, but, is, like... What I worry about is, like, as we see increasing polarization in the political process, or, like, remember the famous case of, like, a congressman, like, beating another congressman on the house of the, like, on the floor of the, of the, I think it was the house. I think it was a congressman. Yeah. No, it was a senator. The guy was a senator. beat his king. Yeah. Oh, then it was a senator. Um, like... That that's one form of polarization. I'm not too worried about people getting away with that because I don't think that'll go unchecked. Like physical violence, probably by congressmen. I'm not too worried about. What I am more worried about is things that we started to see from Republican and sort of more left wing, but the wings of both parties where they make were comments that certain like comments or actions that they're involved in, like certain right wing politicians might get money from groups that are affiliated with like what are effectively like right-wing terrorist organizations or similarly left-wing um, people like might get money from left-wing terrorist organizations or if you're like if if you're an israeli or if you're a jewish politician you might get money from an israeli like lobbying group or if you're a muslim uh, representative, maybe you get some money from like Palestine, and then you have all these foreign connections that you could, in theory, relate back to. Like, you might also be on that committee. Like, you might also be on like the Foreign Affairs Committee, and then if you were getting subpoenaed for your like campaign contributions from you know, some Israeli lobbying company, you might be able to bypass that by not reporting, like by asserting privilege, and then that's kind of related to your legislative function and. I don't know. I think it's it harms transparency. If you look at the amount, like if you look at how campaign contributions work even today, I don't think that the house, like privileges of the house, I don't know. Maybe I'm just wildly speculating and being paranoid, but so yeah, coming to the next rule that I, I explored a little bit more, the duties of the chaplain or just generally what how, does the existence of a, a house chaplain violate the establishment clause because first of all yeah. can you tell us what the chaplain is of the house sure i'll tell you both who the chaplain is or what the chaplain is and what the establishment clause is so first the chaplain is the person who leads um, religious services in the house when there are like there's a prayer before the start of the session um uh, it's it's a holdover from the english parliament which opened with a prayer each morning as well Similarly, in the U.S. Congress, as in both chambers, actually, the Senate and the House, there's a chaplain, and they give a prayer before the start of the legislative session. Uh, this is also a common practice in many state legislatures uh, and a few municipalities as well. 
So the president is Patrick Conroy. He's a Roman Catholic priest. But we've had Presbyterians. We've had, well, for the most part, either we've had mainly mainline Protestant and the Catholic Church as our chaplains. And that creates one problem in terms of the fact that as we are becoming an increasingly pluralistic society, there's never been, say, a rabbi, as far as I know, who's been the official chaplain. Um, I don't even know if calling a chaplain a rabbi would make sense. I don't know if those are contradictions in terms. But there's never been, for example, an imam or a mullah or any um, Muslim religious authority. There hasn't been a Buddhist. Um, there hasn't been anyone representing any of the Hindu faiths. There hasn't been, say, I don't believe there's been a Mormon one. Now, admittedly, the, the role isn't necessarily super religious the prayers generally take the form of like, you know, as we work on healthcare this year, I ask that like you reflect on this chapter of, you know, like, or like this verse of the New Testament where Jesus says like, you know, care for your neighbors or something like that. It, they're aspirational somewhat. I think they're actually even more neutral than that. I think they're right. I don't think they refer to the Bible. They don't. Yeah. I, so to, to say that they specifically, like, they're generally watered down, not particularly super sect, well, they're not sectarian for the most part, but they do sort of, off, they can invoke things like a higher power um, and clear religiosity. I can, I can read, for example, today's chaplain's prayer. Uh, In a few days, our hearts will turn towards our armed forces as we observe Memorial Day. Many of Americans' sons and daughters have fought and died valiantly for the freedoms we now enjoy. We are grateful for the ultimate sacrifice they have made for us. May your peace rest in their loved ones who continue to grieve. Lord, as the many debates of great importance echo through this historic chamber, I pray that you would give these leaders a softness of heart and speech that they may work to solve their, the problems at hand together. Grant our congressional leaders wisdom and new ideas to solve the complex problems before them. Bless the House of Representatives, O Lord, imbue its leaders with your righteousness. Remind them that to whom much is given, much is required. Lord, our Creator, lover of our souls, hear my prayer. Amen. Right. So, not clearly Catholic in a certain sense, but it's very, like, if you're, if you're someone who doesn't believe in a single God, then the repetition of O Lord would potentially be offensive to your religious sensibilities. But it is still generally, as far as a religious sort of prayer can go, more a spiritualist sort of thing than a particularly sectarian sort of thing. And that's kind of, in general, the point of the chaplain is not to be like, think of, you know, our Lord Jesus saving you on the cross in a very particular, you know, like Catholic ideology or like particular Presbyterian ideology. It's more just... You, like, as our legislative branch, you make some of the most important decisions in our society, and it shouldn't just be decided on sort of technocratic grounds. There should be a certain amount of non-materialistic thinking, a spirituality that goes into legislating that's conducive to, like, empathy and the kindness necessary for a good lawmaker. So it looks like they have guest chaplains from different religions. Yeah, they, they do actually. They, that's that's what I, I was going to get to. It's, uh, officially, we haven't had... Uh, the actual appointed full-time chaplain be outside of the mainline sort of Christian faiths, but there have been guest speakers. Um, and I think this I think may be... There's been an imam guest speaker. Yeah, There's uh, been rabbis guest yes. speakers. Yes, 
but again, my, my core point is that the actual, like, a guest speaker will be someone who, like, comes in and speaks for a day. They haven't been the, like, actual official in it. It's, 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 it's a move in the right direction, of course, because I'm sure in certain legislatures there have never been, uh, you know, certain states are probably not going to see the diversity that you might hope for. But still, there is sort of a limit to the fact that, like, if if I if you look at the the list of chaplains, you've got Presbyterians, Methodists, Baptists, um, Unitarian, which is surprising actually, a little bit Congregationalist, Episcopalian, Lutheran. You know, so exclusively until for, except for the last two, every single uh, chaplain has been. Um, Protestant, and most of them have been mainline Protestant, which is to say Presbyterian or Methodist or um, we've had, like, arguably our court chaplains have represented what has been traditionally understood as the sort of more waspy religiosity of the United States. It doesn't necessarily represent the way that, um, say, I don't know, like, the fact that it's only 2000 is the first Roman Catholic chaplain is kind of strange when you consider how large we have large populations of Irish Catholics and Italian Catholics, uh, as well as Hispanic Catholics, and increasingly numbers of uh, Asian Catholics. Um, so, like, I guess what I'm saying is we are, we see that the this the people who actually are the chaplains represent a kind of the majority faith, but they don't give really a picture of diversity or pluralism, which if you're concerned about the establishment of a particular state religion is what comes into issue. Because what our First Amendment guarantees, among other things, is that there's a freedom concerning. Um, so basically the language is Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of a religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And the problem then is if we only have ever let in mainline Protestant uh, religious chaplains and two Roman Catholics who are the largest, I think, single group of Christians in the nation, are we really preventing the establishment of a religious norm? Which are, are we saying by appointing these people that the only acceptable or the only norm, normal religious faiths in this country are mainline Protestantism and Catholicism? That would be the concern of people who are anti the house chaplain. Also, if you're an atheist, you might just be opposed to the idea of any spiritualist sort of prayer at the beginning of a session. However, um, across the board in every sort of major case that has come up, the two sort of landmark cases or the three landmark cases that have on this issue, um, one of which is Marsh v. Chambers, another is Murray v. Buchanan, and the last is um, the Township of Greece v. Galloway. All three of these have generally held the court chaplains are just so deeply rooted in the historic like nature of legislation like legislatures that they're allowed despite it's, it's the essentially a clause. originalism argument right that no one who passed the first amendment would ever think right. that that's one way of looking would... at it the other way is not to just it's also to say well this is clearly like so the originalist is just to say well the people who passed this also immediately appointed a, uh, 
a, a congressional like the one of the first things that the Congress did when it first assembled after the Constitution was appoint a court chaplain. So on that originalist ground, yes. Another way of looking at it is to say, well, traditionally within the Anglo-American system, we've always had a, a court chaplain in our legislatures. You know, I, you can look at the um, the records of the House of Lords and the House of Commons from the 1600s, and you'll find reported in the minutes, there's the, uh, a chaplain's prayer at the beginning of each minute. And we've continued that tradition from then until now, and there's, it's, it can't be inconsistent with the Establishment Clause when it's so clearly part of the Anglo-American experience. Whether or not that still makes sense, though, because, like, that's really the, the part that I'm not sure still makes sense. If that's our justification, we're not necessarily an Anglo-American nation anymore. We're really increasingly pluralistic, even if you want to say that you're, that even if you want to make sort of like a white nationalism claim that America is a white nation, that still doesn't permit an Anglo-American view of America because in other sort of, I, I mean, I do think that across democracies in the modern world, I think there's generally a court prayer, but it doesn't necessarily hold that the Anglo-American tradition of the court chaplain is inherently necessary for democracy or a fair democracy. So like now that we've grown increasingly pluralistic and you're seeing more people of Muslim faith, you're seeing more people of Hindu faith, you're seeing more people of non-traditional um, faiths, or at least non-American traditional faiths, and you're seeing the rise of atheism, that it's harder to make the argument that the Establishment Clause isn't in conflict with the court chaplain. So far, it doesn't seem like it's going to go anywhere, but I think that looking forward, at least to me, this seems like a holdover from a more religious time, and if we want to really be consistent with the anti-establishment view of religion and secularism, we need to kind of, there's nothing wrong with the words of wisdom at the beginning of the session, but I think that we should strip entirely the sort of spiritualistic or, I guess, religious attachments of a court chaplain and just have maybe like a speaker come in and say like, you know, keep in mind good thoughts. Or you could have a philosopher come in. You could have some academic philosopher and ethicist come in each morning and say like, hey guys, today... When you go to legislate, think of, like, you. I'll give you a brief talk about utilitarianism, or I'll give you a brief talk about virtue ethics, or I'll give you a brief discussion of this particular, like, moralistic view. Like, if the idea is to situate the legislatures with the prayer, then there are ways to do that same situating without attaching religiosity to it. That's all I think, especially as we, you know, progress out of our sort of colonialist sort of mindset that makes sense i don't think congressman would want like a whole lecture on no i don't utilitarianism think, yeah a lecture would be excessive prayers by the chaplain are just maybe a minute or two minutes long i think that's also room for improvement though why do you like why can't we look at it as an opportunity to sort of have ongoing education for our legislatures like at the beginning i, of I just day, don't think it's practical to have the legislators actually agree to that. Like, try like. I don't even think it needs to be, like, Rusa. 30 think, minutes. I do you think Rusa like, would agree to, like, a 10-minute speech by a philosophy professor before the start of research? I don't know. If, I don't know if they would, but I think that it's a shame that they don't. 
Like, I think, I also think that if you did make it just a philosophical message, then I would be okay with still allowing certain chap. like, you could allow religious figures back in, because they also, if, like, if you include that in part of an inclusive package of, we want to look at ways of being in the world, one way of being in the world and giving you meaning to the world is this religious view, but there are a lot of other ways to find and derive meaning in the world. And those are the frames that we want to put in the legislator's mind. I think today the problem is a little too often that legislators are so far abstracted from what we're doing is trying to help people every day. Sometimes, like, of course they say that lip service wise, but I think that they perhaps can tend to forget like on the the mat, like the micro level, what their actions, like the effect of their actions, and you might better situate that if you had a fifteen minute discussion at the beginning of every session to say, look, for those of you who even bothered to show up at the beginning of the session, which is very few people anyway, think these thoughts first, and while you're discussing, maybe keep these in mind. I guess so. I don't know. I I also don't care if it's inconveniencing for the congressman. This is their job. I think that if we can shape, create structures within their job to make them perform better, like a legislature, their job, in theory, is to produce the best state for their citizens, given a certain set of parameters set out in the Constitution. You know, we're a nation of free citizens, so our legislation should go towards, you know, guaranteeing those freedoms. But I don't think there's any problem with having a pep talk at the beginning of each session, which is effectively what the prayer is. But if we're going to have a pep talk, let's make it a useful one. Let's harness the ability of like other wise men to inform our nation's lawmakers. If it takes them a little bit more time, that's a shame. It'd also be a shame if congressmen actually had to bother to read their bills before they voted on them. Like There are lots of things that we allow in Congress presently for the sake of getting business done, which are clearly things that if we were designing a perfect system or even a better or functional system, we would remove. Are you saying we can't have congressmen rely on their aides to read their bills? I'm saying that congressmen, American congressmen, should have to work a little bit harder like British MPs. Like, the the staff size... If you look at the staff size of a British MP or other nations, like parliamentary ministers, and you look at the staff size of a congressman or a senator, I think you would be shocked at the two separate sizes. Well, well, there is like twice as many congressmen as there are MPs, right? Sorry, twice as many MPs as there are congressmen. Right. But still, and I don't think that not, you would find the ratio is two to one in terms of extra staff that a congressman has. Not all MPs are that important. Right, but that's mo- not all that senators are, th- or actually pretty much all those senators are that important, but not all the congressmen are. If you're like the one of the congress, if you're one of the congressmen from California, it's not necessarily, you're not going to be earth shatteringly important to the day-to-day business of the leadership of Congress, which is what really shapes how things happen. You're not going to be super important probably to your committee when they're like... Well... Maybe, but at the same time, I think you might be because you're. Part, I mean, you're part of the leadership and you're part of committees and committee staff is important. Whereas in the UK, I think there's the same amount of st- staff is just very inequitably distributed. Like the leadership will have 
will be part of government as well, so right. they'll have, well, that, like... that makes sense, though. That's just, I mean, I guess that's a general complaint about parliamentary systems versus ours, but... Yeah. Anyway, so... Anyway, coming to your, your, your little tidbits so of the, the week. F- the first thing I want to discuss was what is legislative business and how does it relate to, essentially, the sessions of Congress? So the thing that I always found interesting growing up was, or even not even interesting, I just didn't understand it because no one understood it and they couldn't explain it to me, is when is it a veto and when is it a pocket veto? So most people don't don't really have a full idea of what a pocket veto is versus a normal veto. Because traditionally, you can't get a pocket veto. So pocket vetoes are basically just happen when there are, when Congress is in a rush, essentially. Yeah, you want to define that real quick, just for everyone who knows? So what happens is, Congress can adjourn anytime they want. They can say, we're going to meet, and now we are stopping the meeting. And the idea is, is that while Congress is in session, while Congress is debating things, while Congress is in town in Washington, D.C., Congress can receive messages from the president. So that means if Congress sends the president a bill, Congress can get a message back from the president saying that the president vetoes the bill or the president signed the bill or the president took no action and then the bill returned back to Congress and became law. Whereas if Congress is not in session, if Congress is adjourned, there's no way for Congress to receive messages. So essentially they are queued up until the next time Congress meets. In a sense, then the president can't really return the bill back to Congress if the president doesn't sign it, or at least that's the justification for it, and it's the justification actually found in the Constitution, where the Constitution says if the president can't return the bill back to Congress because Congress has adjourned, then the bill does not become a law. Right. So if Congress didn't, didn't adjourn, then the bill does become a law. The real-time pocket vetoes are implicated in the modern day is when Congress adjourns because they have to. So, for example, when the new Congress enter, when the new Congress becomes the actual Congress. So, when the new Congress is sworn in, the old Congress is no longer Congress. On January third at noon, if let's say at eleven fifty nine a.m. the old Congress passes a law, it can get sent to the president and it can become a law. However, if the president just ignores that law, there is no way for that law to return back to the old Congress because the old Congress is the one who passed it. And there, therefore, it's a pocket veto because there's no way for Congress to override the veto because simply it didn't that receive the sense. law back from the president. And the president didn't actually veto the law. He just ignored the law. Right. The issue is then, why why do we need to pass? The, the, another issue that I always thought about was why do we need to pass a bill in one, let's say we pass a bill in the Senate, why can't the House pass the same bill later on whenever it wants? And the idea here is that we have just a historical precedent where both the same House of the same session and the same Senate of the same session have to pass the same bill. It has to go to the President, and the President either has to veto it or return the bill unsigned back to the House that passed it in order for it to become a law. So, this is essentially just the idea that bills do not continue from one Congress to another, but in modern days, it actually, because Congress continues from session to session, and the session is uh, every year, so usually Congress adjourns or enters recess between sessions, 
And so, for example, in 2019, there's the first session of Congress, and then in 2020 will be the second session of this current Congress, the 116th mm -hmm. Congress. And then in that case, bills do continue from the first session to the second session, but historically, it wasn't always so until Congress just decided to say, oh, we'll just continue bills between sessions. But that's allowed. How many years then, though, is that limit? How many times can you continue? So just once, really just once and that makes a certain amount of sense because the shortest term for a congressman or the yeah the shortest possible term that anyone in the legislature can serve is two years right yeah congressional term exactly so an interesting practice of this is most business continues but this is the reason why we don't have we have pocket vetoes this is the reason why if the senate passes if the 115th senate passes a bill or resolution, the 116th House can't pick up and pass that same bill because it has to go back to the same House that passed the original bill, and that House no longer is in existence. It's interesting to me. I hadn't thought about it too much, but there's a, there is a kind of parallel in the sense that, so supposing that a bill gets passed, uh, vetoed by the president, and then doesn't get an override, you can't reintroduce that same text in the same session. I'm not sure. I think it might be possible to introduce it. I mean, you can always Un write a... Completely unchanged? I, you'd have to write a, a different, a sl slightly different law as well. I saying. mean, like, no, I, I mean, if you're going fully by parliamentary procedure, probably not. I think if there's a change in the underlying, like, general, I think a what general the president rule of thumb changes is a change, his mind, are you saying? No, 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 like, a change in the underlying facts. So, like, if between the time that the first law got rejected and the second time it's introduced, there's a substantial change in... Like, let's say it's a healthcare law, and, like, previously... I mean, you, you probably just reconsider... You probably just reconsider the... Either the VA yeah, or... Yeah, right. you could, you could or, do that, but I'm... I guess that would probably be what... But there's some time caps on reconsideration. Like, there's a number of sessions that pass between... Oh, well, I mean, a new Congress can't reconsider an old Congress's bills. No, 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 not... I didn't mean formal session. That's the problem with speaking in parliamentary language, too, is that... Session means a specifically formal thing, and it picks out a certain thing. Current, well, current Congress, actually, yes, there are two sessions, but for all intents and purposes, sessions have lost distinctions and meanings. It's more just like a bureaucratic uh, keeping of, I don't know, minutes. So in the past, in the whole idea of a session was that everything would start anew at, at each session. So, for example, like Robert's Rules, which was originally adopted from similar procedures to the House of Representatives, the idea was to have each session essentially start anew. So each, even though Congress wasn't fundamentally changed from the first session to the second session, it would start all rules, Fresh. all laws from the beginning. Do you but, think that there is a justification for that that isn't just bureaucratic? Like, is there a... I think it, policy explanation. I mean, there, eh? it just makes more sense in modern days. Like, if you pass. No, no. I mean, even historically, like, why do you think that rule came about? Like, I agree. It to me, it does sound sort of strange that well, if we if we're gonna reelect people every year and we're gonna have Congress continue every year and there's still gonna be Congress next year, why are we doing this whole business of having to reintroduce things? Like, what's the justification? Is it that senators are new or a con a new Congress? Should have a complete fresh slate and just, just democracy, think it's the st or structure of the Constitution. Actually, I mean, because yeah. the Constitution says that Congress has to meet every year. 
have seven annual. Even getting behind that, the con- why did the framers want that provision? Like, what, what, what? Do you see any utility to this rule? Yeah, I mean, I think the provision was wanted because we used to live really far away from Congress, and it would take like weeks or maybe like a month to get from California to Washington right. D.C. And so it makes sense that in order to kind of have Congress meet each year, you would have to have two different sessions. No, but I get that even with the sessions thing, it's like at the so let's let's say we forget the the two sessions, but just at the after two years when we've had two sessions and we're starting a new con an entirely new Congress, why then? Could we not continue legislation on through that? Like, even if things are really far away, let's say we still have horses and stuff. What what would be the harm of once these new Congress people get back? Presumably, a lot of them are going to be incumbents because we historically know that incumbents tend to win their reelections. A whole bunch of people who previously basically agree on it. it like the one justification and the one I think is the most compelling is it's just a cornerstone of democratic theory that. The people in the new Congress never voted for the legislation in the old Congress, and thus this new Congress shouldn't be bound by the old Congress's rules. Um, that's really the only justification I can see. I don't see it as a... Like, I don't think it makes better legislation. I think it might even be preferable to allow things that were introduced and approved by previously to not have to go through that I same guess I guess the loop. idea, I would say, is to allow people to voice their opinions on things and like if a different house elected that isn't going to pass that same law then maybe it makes sense to have that law die because for example if a house passed a law that was unpopular and then they adjourned signed day and the new term of the house began with new representatives and they no longer want to pass that same law then that makes sense that the people have spoken their their mind and that law was not. Right. Well, but if, if that's the case, then couldn't they just have to... Why do we have it as an automatic, the law dies, as opposed to, well, if the Congress, if the new Congress doesn't like that law, then they can explicitly vote down that law that they didn't like, and otherwise the other ones are still around. Why wouldn't that be preferable? I'm just, as in contrast to the first system. I mean, I don't think they can vote down, so if we're... If, like the House passes law in a previous session, and then the new right. Senate passes the same law, but the mm-hmm. new House doesn't want to pass that law, they wouldn't be able to do anything. Oh, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's it. Yeah. I was thinking more like the the old House and Senate get like pocket vetoed or something like that, or let's oh, you say mean, allow the new House and Senate to veto override. That's what you mean. Yeah, or th- a yeah. situation. Like I never that. understood that. I I I honestly believe that the new House and Senate should have the power to override. Okay. veto of or, the old House and Senate's laws. Okay. It, to me, it makes no sense, but who am, I, who am I to know better than the founders? Right. No, no, no. The, the, the part that I do totally understand is, it, to me, it makes perfect sense that you shouldn't be allowed, if the, if an old con, if an old House of Representatives has approved a law, the new Senate can't approve a law and then say, well, look, we've approved the old one so the president can sign it now. That doesn't make yeah, any sense I agree. to me. That that's silly, but to me, what makes a little bit more sense is to say like, so like committee um, reports technically think die and have to be reauthorized um, with the start of a new Congress. You mean committee investigations? Not reports. investigations, right? The reports they make later, but like a committee investigation 
last for the term of a Congress and has to be reauthorized and generally are if they're an important, you know, investigation, they'll get reauthorized at the start of a new Congress. But like, why wouldn't it be preferable to just have committees carry on or investigations carry on except when explicitly authorized otherwise? Because like right now, the default position is committee, like stuff extinguishes at the end of, of a session and that is, I guess, a, you might call that fair dem democratic sense, but it's not particularly efficient necessarily. It's not the most efficient way to govern. I guess you could make the argument. I don't think our government is made to be efficient. I think our government is made to be democratic. Okay, so it's just the the overall like the number one reason to do this is it's dem it, it builds dem democratic value even if it's perhaps inefficient, and we're gonna keep it because it's over. It's, it's its probative effect in that democracy is greater than the prejudice that it slows down actual business being hap like happening. So the second thing I want to talk about was the clerk serving as the presiding officer. It's an interesting idea because when the new house convenes, there is no clerk, there is no speaker, there is no parliamentarian of the house because the house is not a continuing body. So each representative's term expires. And if some of them might be re-elected, re some of them might not be, but a whole new house is formed at the start of a new term of Congress. So over time, just the precedent has emerged that the clerk serves as the presiding officer of the House of Representatives during its transition period. And this has been adopted as part of the rules of the House, but if you really look at the precedents of the House, these aren't actually binding on a new House, so it's kind of interesting that the clerk has this role of serving as presiding officer, even though there's no requirement that an old house can require the clerk to serve as the presiding officer of the new house. Right, because in theory, as we just discussed, the actions of the old house die with that house, right? Exactly. But by law, actually, the clerk is responsible for operating for the house during this adjournment period. Actually, fun fact, Chris, though, even mm -hmm. though old houses of Congress can't really force stuff on the new house of congress they can force things on the new house of congress with the help of the president they can pass a law saying the new house <laughs> says can't meet until a certain date because congress can by law set a different date to meet hmm. and so then the new house might not meet until let's say december 31st <laughs> right but normally that won't happen the clerk is responsible for compiling all certificates of election for this new house so potentially even a malicious clerk could not accept certificates of election from the members the clerk does not like hypothetically speaking <laughs> and also the clerk is responsible for counting the votes for the speaker of the house election that means is the clerk can decide oh i didn't see someone say that they're voting for this person as speaker i mean i'm not saying the clerk would do that. I'm just saying that it's, it's very peculiar that all these powers are vested in an officer of the house. And in our idea of norms and normative behavior in our country, I don't think that's a problem. But if people become very, very politicized, very, very partisan, it can become a problem because then, because the clerk is elected by the majority of the house, especially the majority, which is usually of one party, then this new clerk who's in charge of 
well, then for this new house, the old clerk is still in charge, can essentially behave in a malicious way that could make it difficult for the new house to convene and to implement the people's will, especially if there was a change of parties. These are things a clerk could do, but I don't see it ever happen. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I feel like you wouldn't see, like, huge abuses, but I feel like there are, you know... If, if you were, say, a Republican... Like, if, if you knew you were coming into the new Senate, or if, if you were coming into the new Congress with the same majority you had last time, or, like, you still had a, a partisan majority, and you knew you were probably going to reappoint the clerk, there might be ways for you to manipulate, like, to simplify or efficiencies to be created by the fact that you've appointed the previous clerk, who now has, I guess... Well, the clerk is actually not reappointed until after the election of the speaker. Right, right. But I guess what I mean is, like, if, if, like, so let's say you, you've been, you're, you're the, the party, the majority party. You've already won the election, though, so you know in the next session you're going to continue to hold that majority. And because you appoint the clerk, you know that you'll still probably have the votes to appoint the same clerk again in the next session. And you figure that out, you've worked it out, the clerk you've informed, because the clerk is sort of a partisan appointee. So you you and the clerk, you as the like speaker of the house because you'd be controlling the majority, decide, you know, concoct a plan where that speaker, I don't know, restricts I don't know, voting rights or something. I, it's hard to think of truly devious things without Well I mean I the guess, clerk can being... just say that they didn't receive the certificate of election from a large number of representatives and Woohoo! Those representatives can't vote for the speaker. Yeah. I vote. kind of agree with you, though. I think like, as big as these powers are, in practice, they're never going to be exercised to their most, you know, utmost Hopefully. potential. Yeah, but I think even I think you, you you were you hit the nail on the head when you said our normative structure of government would kind of prevent for a clerk to really assert any great powers would be so r- r- crazy. But like, in fact, so beyond the pale, the clerk has been allowed to, yeah, yeah, make rulings those, on points of order during this. I agree. During this, the precedent uh, certainly exists, but it doesn't seem like most of the times where they've exercised their authority, they haven't been, you know, wildly like sinister, evil genius schemes like yeah. the ones that I'm thinking of in my head that they could theoretically do. Most of it has been relatively fair. But Hines actually does make a comment that even though this is precedent, it's not actually a rule of the House. And the House could at any point just decide have someone else serve as the presiding officer if they yeah. so Which desire. Is, like, uh, that's kind of why I think it's unlikely that the rule would ever even get seriously abused because the, the, the reason that the clerk has historically developed into this role is because it makes like Makes it kind of makes sense. A clerk is going to know how to run the house. A, a, a like clerk of the house is a professional position, so it's not the end of the world. It's probably occupied by a lawyer, so it's not the end of the world if he knows he has to stay on for a few extra months. And it's really as soon as he gets he, he finishes his first day uh, of that new session, he'll have you know, the second day they've elected major officials, so there's a new speaker and the speaker can run everything again and appoint the new clerk. And so, Well, the House actually elects the clerk by resolution, right. I believe. What 
other things does the clerk do that could potentially be impacted? So the clerk is the primary uh, record keeper of the house. So the clerk's job is to help take the minutes and publish the record of the house. Right, which is, you know, bowed down as well, eventually, though. But also, like, the clerk is a partisan role, at least historically. A new clerk is elected every Congress, and then once a new party gains the majority, they tend to elect their own clerk. Because the clerk really serves as a formality for the most part, but if the clerk was really a of the opposite party, a clerk could then refuse to affix official documents of the House. So historically, in order to have a binding subpoena or a binding uh, order of the House, you need to affix the seal of the House to that document, have an official form of that document, and I guess the clerk could refuse to do so. That's why it's good to have a clerk from your own local persuasion. Right. So the clerk's actual duties during this transition power are to prepare the role of the members elect. So every single representative who was elected to the House of Congress has to have a certificate of election attesting to the fact that they were elected. The clerk calls members elects to order the commencement of each Congress and essentially establishes quorum at the start of each, uh, start of each House of Congress. The clerk also decides all questions of order during this transition period. So also, before the House even really votes on the Speaker, the clerk also is in charge of uh, taking all reports of the President, all other reports from the other House of Congress, and making, and making a report of the fact that the clerk received all these different reports or messages from these different official, official agencies. Then, during this new session, the House then nominates different candidates for Speaker of the House, the clerk accepts his nominations, and then the clerk goes through calling each representative by name, and the representative indicates who they're voting for, and the and the representative doesn't need to vote for someone who was nominated. So really, the nominees are from the majority and minority caucus. They nominate a candidate for Speaker of the House, but then any representative can vote for anyone they would like to serve as House Speaker. In fact, it's kind of interesting because anyone can serve as House Speaker. There are literally no requirements to serve as House Speaker except mm-hmm. to be elected by the House of Representatives. Right. Which is in line with the historical role of the Speaker, if you consider that the example that the founders had was the English system. If it's more of a neutral referee that they thought they were going to have, then it doesn't really matter who's appointed to the neutral referee. And in fact, it's probably supposed to be a centrist. Here, we've developed a different sort of speaker, and we have, in practice, norms which are different than what would theoretically be allowed under our standard, like, current rules. Because in reality, like the speaker is generally selected ahead of time because the party will have divided up amongst itself who's going to do what, and then the voting will proceed. Exactly. So then once the speaker is elected, the speaker assumes the role of speaker, the clerk then no longer is presiding over the house, then the house essentially proceeds to elect the, a new clerk. So either they elect the same clerk if it's the same party, or a different clerk if it's a different party. Mm-hmm. This has been uh, Chris and Victor on Parliamentary Procedure. Thank you for listening. Next episode, we'll focus our attention on the budget reconciliation process as well as several other curious or powerful rules which shape our political process. Thank you, everyone.
Yeah, thank you for joining us.